Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today, well, there's some new news about Hunter Biden and all those global business deals. Yes, we've talked about conflicts of interest. We've talked about uh, a potential bribe paid on his watch at Burisma Holdings in Ukraine. Now we're going to talk about the fact that our own Treasury Department, that's right, the U.S. Treasury Department and its Financial Crimes Network Center, Well, they flagged a bunch of foreign transactions flowing into Hunter Biden companies back at the end of the Obama administration, the beginning of the Trump administration. They were flagged as suspicious sort of thing that we look for when we're looking for money laundering or untoward influence. Uh, The real question is, did anyone follow up and investigate or did they look the other way? Because President Vice President Joe Biden's son was involved. We don't know the answer, but I can tell you this. I broke the story. Uh, on just the news today, I can tell you next week's report with the Senate committees, uh, Senate Homeland Security by Ron Johnson and um, Senate Finance led by Chuck Grassley. You're going to see this information, these suspicious activity reports mentioned. That's what I'm hearing from Democrats. I think it's going to be a big deal. Uh, buckle your seatbelt. We're going to get back to that in a second. And today, a very special guest, the woman who sat on the podium entangled with the beast that is the news media in Washington. President Trump's former press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, joins us. She's got a new book out. She's got a lot to say about the state of media, the state of politics, the state of Washington, and the state of faith in America. This is a must-listen-to interview. I'm so glad that Sarah joined us. She's a thoughtful uh, person, a rising star in politics, and uh, you're going to get to hear from her directly. Why did she write the book? What does she think about working for President Trump? What's going to happen in the election? All the questions you can imagine. We got them all in. So coming up in a few minutes, but first we're going to go to that commercial break. Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And in a few minutes, as I promised, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is joining us. Yes, the former White House press secretary, the close and trusted advisor of President Trump, a woman with a new book out that you have to read, and a woman that knows a thing or two about the national news media and all the silliness that we're now encountering in America with political reporting and White House correspondence, bias, inaccuracy, false narratives, completely untrue stories. So much to cover with Sarah, the Atlantic uh, series of stories recently, 
the coverage of the president's peace deals. We're going to cover it all. Well, the woman who stood there and took the incoming for, for two years for President Trump as the White House press secretary, a rising star in the Republican Party. You're going to want to hear about this. We're also going to ask her, might she run for office just like her dad did? Remember, her dad is Mike Huckabee, the former governor of the great state of Arkansas. So much to talk about. You're not going to want to miss that interview. But first, I teased you. Yeah, I've been teasing you for a week about this. I finally had to deliver. And the truth of the matter is, it's an important story. It's at the top of justthenews.com right now. Yes, two Senate committees, one led by Ron Johnson, the other by Chuck Grassley, uh, the Homeland Security Committee, Ron Johnson's committee, Finance Committee, Charles Grassley. They were sent from the Treasury Department in the last year a series of what is known as Suspicious Activity Reports, SARS. Uh, They're a law enforcement tool. We seldom talk about them. They're something that stay behind the scenes. But these SARS reports, according to my sources, show that several foreign financial transactions involving firms connected with Hunter Biden, that's right, Vice President Joe Biden's son, the guy that had deals in China when Joe Biden was visiting China, the kid that had deals in Ukraine while Joe Biden was overseeing um, uh, U.S.-Ukraine policy, Hunter Biden, several transactions flowing into businesses related to him, associated with him, flagged as suspicious, uh, the first step in what often becomes a financial investigation. Now, here's a question we don't know. We don't know answered. It may be the unanswered question when Senators Johnson and Grassley released their reports, which I hear could be as early as next week. Did anyone at the FBI, the U.S. intelligence community, the Treasury Department, other law enforcement agencies do anything to investigate these suspicions that the Treasury Department had? Or did they turn a blind eye? Because, well, it was the vice president's son, Joe Biden's son, involved. We don't know the answer to that. But we do know that these uh, transaction reports were sent to the Senate committee. We do know that Democrats are worried, the Democrats I've talked to, that this is going to be one of the big revelations next week that they're bracing for in the Johnson-Grassley report. We've been talking about that report on this uh, podcast for a few weeks now. We even had Senator Ron Johnson on here a few months back. Um, it's one of the big revelations I'm hearing in the report, uh, but it's it's going to be an important one. And I think that um, as we look back now, we have to stand back for a second and remember where we were just a year ago. A year ago, as the impeachment proceedings by Adam Schiff and others started to uh, percolate, the story was, it is wrong to ask questions about Hunter Biden. It's a conspiracy theory. There's nothing wrong with Hunter Biden. By golly, you're a wingnut, John Solomon or others, if you report on these Ukraine allegations, these business dealings that Peter Schweitzer highlighted. We were all pasted as conspiracy theory, nut jobs, bad journalists. I actually had a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army working at the White House National Security Council. You're going to remember this guy, Lieutenant Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, um, decorated war hero. I'm not going to take anything away from him for his war heroism, but he actually testified that he didn't think anything in my Ukraine stories were accurate except maybe some of the grammar. It's just not true. That testimony is false. Everything I reported in the Ukraine stories has uh, been validated by facts, by my lawsuits. But most importantly, I didn't have it all. It was actually worse than I thought. Let's, Let's reveal where we were. So where we were in September of 2019 as impeachment started was Hunter Biden 
He's off limits. Nothing bad happened. Nothing untoward. No concern there. No worries. Now we know because of the lawsuits that I filed with the great folks at the Southeastern Legal Foundation, because of documents uncovered by um, the Senate committees and the House committees, uh, because of revelations that Tom Fitton, my good friend who was on the show earlier this week at Judicial Watch, documents they've unearthed, that the following things are unequivocally, irrefutably, absolutely true. The State Department, that guy George Kent with the bow tie, remember him, the witness in impeachment? They believed that Joe Biden and Hunter Biden had created a prohibited appearance of a conflict of interest because Joe Biden was overseeing policy to end corruption in um, Ukraine. His son was on the board of a company, Burisma Holdings, that was being investigated for corruption. And in the middle of that, Joe Biden, whether intentionally, unwittingly, we don't know, fired the prosecutor overseeing that investigation, a guy named Victor Shokin, by telling Ukraine's president, if you don't fire this guy, you don't get your billion dollars in USA. That would have bankrupted Ukraine at that moment. So it's irrefutable that Joe Biden fired the prosecutor. He'll say, I didn't do it because of Hunter. It doesn't matter under ethics laws. Guess what? It's a conflict of interest when he fires the guy investigating his son. Uh, And that's not my assessment. The State Department officials who've testified said, yes, it created the appearance of a conflict. It even undercut uh, the U.S. efforts to uh, fight corruption in Ukraine because people were wondering, how can we listen to Joe Biden and trust him if his son and your company are entangled in these corruption allegations? That's the testimony of Senate officials. You can read it. It is fact. The second thing, which I broke just a few days ago, and it's a big one, the State Department reported, according to documents I obtained through a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, the State Department reported several months after Hunter Biden joined the Burisma board in Ukraine, this Ukrainian gas company, get ready, that they believed Burisma, the firm where Hunter Biden had a fiduciary responsibility, was a board member, paid a $7 million bribe to the Ukrainian prosecutors trying to get them to drop some or all of those corruption investigations that were ongoing. That is now fact. It's in State Department documents. There was concern at the State Department about a conflict of interest. There was concern about ongoing corruption that occurred while Hunter Biden, or at least was reported, while Hunter Biden was on the board. Now we got another thing. Documents I got under a lawsuit, documents I got from sources. The State Department was being pressured and lobbied by Burisma's lobbyists and their lawyers in America, both at the State Department in Washington at the highest levels, the Undersecretary of State, and at the highest levels of the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, yes, Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, another one of those impeachment witnesses, they were being pressured to help Burisma try to end these corruption allegations. They were enlisting the help of telling the U.S. Embassy, there's no reason to consider us corrupt. Help us convince the Ukrainians to make this go away. The State Department felt very uncomfortable by that pressure because why? Hunter Biden's name was invoked. The memo show, the pressure campaign, mentioned or highlighted the fact that you need to help because Hunter Biden's on this board. That's what creates a conflict of interest. That's what creates undue pressure on State Department officials. That is a fact. Everything that Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and Adam Schiff told you, no trouble here, no problems here. It is demonstrably wrong. And that's not the only thing. Let's go to one more issue that we're now finding out. In the story today, where we now know that the Treasury Department was the second federal agency worried about financial transactions around Hunter Biden. Yep, they're FinCEN, 
Financial Network Crime Center. They flagged these transactions, as I, as I said in the story. They were worried about some untoward or suspicious activity in these accounts associated with Hunter Biden businesses. So you got the State Department, the Treasury Department uh, being lobbied, being pressured, being worried about conflicts of interest. Here's another one. The State Department thought Burisma was so corrupt that after it got a contract from the State Department, it really wasn't a money contract. It was a participation contract. You can join our clean energy program in Ukraine. It's like a good housekeeping seal. If you're Burisma and you got these corruption allegations, everybody's saying you're bad dudes. And all of a sudden you can say, well, I'm working in the State Department uh, clean energy program. I'm not that bad, right? The State Department wouldn't be uh, uh, working with us if they thought we were corrupt. Well, guess what? George Kent, the bow tie guy, you remember the guy we've been talking about? He went and got that a relationship canceled. Why? Because the documents show the State Department believed Burisma was still corrupt while Hunter Biden was on the board. Still corrupt. We now know why. They had fears that a $7 million bribe had been paid. These are the facts. There is a serious public interest issue in Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and their transactions in China and in Ukraine. A year ago, we were being smeared saying it was a conspiracy theory. It sounds an awful lot like what people were saying about, well, what Sarah Carter and I were reporting three years ago. We started to say the Russia collusion investigation may not be real. It may be flawed. It may be factually inaccurate. Christopher Steele's dossier may not be accurate, may have been Russian disinformation. We're being laughed at. We now know that is the real true story. The Ukraine story is going the same way. The facts are this. The State Department, the Treasury Department in the Obama administration had concerns about bribery, corruption, conflicts of interest, and suspicious financial transactions. If that's not a story worth reporting as a journalist, if that's not a story that should be on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, everywhere else, well then, guess what? Maybe we've forgotten what we're supposed to be as journalists. This is an important story. The facts are all there. You go to my story today, you click on the dig in button. You can download the documents, look at the research, look at all the things I have. All of the Hunter Biden stories are carefully documented. I'm sorry, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. I honor your service in the military, but you had no right to call my reporting wrong. It was accurate. The Hills Review found no factual errors with my reporting when they did it. Folks, we got to get Americans and voters and officials and senators to focus on this evidence. There were serious red flags about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. Were they illegal? I don't know. Were they unethical? It sounds like it, according to the State Department testimony. We were cross, they were crossing the conflict of interest and appearance of conflict interest line prohibited under federal ethics laws. But the idea we were scared away, threatened, shamed for asking these questions is now proved a folly. We were on the right path because the facts warranted. I didn't have any bias. I don't care if Joe Biden wins or loses. I care about the facts as a reporter. And there were ethical, legal, diplomatic reasons to be concerned about what went on in Ukraine with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. And it's time now for America to put the impeachment behind him and get back to these questions. Don't buy any more of the subterfuge. Let's look at the facts. There are real reasons to be concerned. Maybe Hunter Biden and Joe Biden have good explanations. Thus far, they haven't offered them. They haven't been pressed to offer them. They owe us an explanation for what went on here. Did Hunter Biden know a bribe occurred? Did the FBI look at it? Let's find out. They deserve the benefit of the doubt, but they ought to be asked and it ought to be answered. 
Right now, they're hiding behind their media friends, and that is just wrong. All right, enough about that. You can tell how impassioned I am about these facts. But we've got something far better and new to talk about in a second. The new book by the amazing Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She's joining us in a second. We'll talk about a book about the media, about politics, the elections. You do not want to miss this interview. Sarah Huckabee Sanders coming around the corner right after this commercial break. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest. You know her well, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the extraordinary press secretary uh, for Donald Trump from 2017 to 2019, trusted advisor, former manager for her dad's presidential campaign. She's done so much, I feel like an underachiever. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Such an honor to be with you. Uh, it's always nice to hear friendly and familiar voices. So I <laughs> appreciate you having me on. Well, speaking of friendly and familiar, your book has such a remarkable uh, tone to it, the personal nature of what politics does and what you witness every day on the front lines of history. If you haven't gotten this book, for folks, it's called Speaking for Myself, Faith, Freedom, and the Fight of Our Lives Inside the Trump White House. It is a must read. The second you pick it up, you're not going to put it down. You can't stop reading. It's that good. Sarah, what um, what inspired you to write this? I mean, it's a very personal memoir. It's, uh, it really strikes me as I feel like I'm sitting right alongside you when I'm reading it. But what, what struck you to uh, or, or motivated you to write this? Well, I really felt like there were so many books, as you know, that are negative and just really critical of the president. And I felt like people deserve to know the Donald Trump that I got to know after spending two and a half years at the White House almost every single day by his side is a person who loves this country, is fighting for this country. And despite the fact he's under just a total barrage of attacks, he continues to stand up and fight back. And I wanted people to see the person I got to know. And I really poured my heart and soul into the book, but not just. Um, a political memoir. I didn't want to write a book that was just for political junkies. I wanted to write a book that was for everybody. And so I tried to really personalize it. Hopefully people will laugh a little, cry a little, and maybe even be inspired and reminded why America is so great. Uh, I think you uh, succeeded on all of those fronts. I, I was inspired. I had moments where my eyes welled up. And um, I'm also struck by how important, you know, sometimes we see folks like you every day on the podium and we forget the human side. You know, you're a working mom. You're a woman of deep faith. And I, I thought your your faith and how you, you know, faith in the public square met really came through in this book, much like it does in your dad's books too. This is a, This is an important part of the Huckabee DNA, right? Faith and service together in in uh, in one package. How important was faith for you as you were going through a lot of those tribulations? I remember 2017 in the Russia firestorm and everybody thinking the end was here, uh, but you persevered and fought through it. Uh, how important is that faith to you in your overall public service? Well, 
extremely. I mean, without it, I'm not sure I would have survived some of those most difficult days um, where we were under attack. And, you know, if I hadn't had faith, I, I wouldn't have had the confidence to step on that stage, stand behind that podium. You know, I wasn't going into that room looking for the New York Times or CNN or anybody else to define me. I had a creator who had already done that. And I knew that regardless of what happened there, I would still be loved, not just by my God, but also my family and my friends. Uh, They didn't care if I was the White House press secretary or just plain old Sarah. I knew that I had a foundation of both faith and a base of support that was going to be there. And those two things were critical in helping me get through some of the most challenging and difficult times. Yeah. And you, you uh, highlight some of those remarkable moments. I, I know this restaurant because I, I have a cabin up in the Shenandoahs and I've been to Lexington, and, but the Red Hen restaurant where you're kicked out, uh, the mocking that Michelle Wolf did at the Correspondence Dinner. I think I even remember your husband getting kicked out of a fantasy league poll just because you guys were Trump supporters. <laughs> I mean, how silly is that? Um, all of those moments of you know, where politics became personal because it wasn't about the politics anymore. It was really about attacking you personally just because you were defending the president of the United States. The um, Where... Where has polit- how has politics got to this point? I mean, I started 30 years ago and we didn't have this vitriol. I mean, Donald Trump, uh, Ronald Reagan and, and uh, Tip O'Neill could have a beer on the sidelines. Bob Dole and George Mitchell might fight it out in the Senate floor, but then they would go in a cubby and, and be gentlemen to each other. Um, how did we get to this point where hatred is so strong that we even attack people personally for their public service jobs? You know, I think one of the things, and, and while I think social media can be a great tool I think it has desensitized people to that human interaction gives. And I think people so often see people on TV and forget that they're real people, that they have real families. And, uh, you know, you also see social media inflaming the most, uh, you know, fringe side on both the left and the right. Their people are operating in these echo chambers where they're getting spun up and I think it's very divisive because you're hearing things and seeing things in your feed that only amplify kind of your basic feeling already and it takes it from you know a feeling of a five takes it up to a 10 because you're inundated all day with people who think like you and talk like you and believe like you but in in the most amped up way possible Um, but also you know I, I think a lot of times social media again it takes away that human piece and things that people are willing to say online, they would never say in real life. I think that's where it started. But now people are getting more comfortable as they attack people online, are more willing to attack them in person as well. And I think that it's, it's certainly been a slippery slope. And I think that's played a big role in the divisive nature of our country. It uh, It is amazing. I, I've had some friends say that social media was the uh, cork popping out of a very bad bottle of champagne. And um, it, it <laughs> seems to have just even journalists. I mean, you see now journalists all of a sudden have opinions, which they you know were instructed for 50 or 100 years to keep to themselves. But now they're expressing opinions like they were uh, politicians themselves. And it's it seems to have uncorked a lot of bad things in our in our society. Um 
the media, you had to deal with them on a daily basis. And I'm, I'm part of that beast. So I apologize in advance for being so, but um, uh, you handle it with grace. But I think you also have some pretty strong thoughts, both in the book. And then I've also heard you talk publicly about this, about what's wrong with the media. And then also, because you and your dad and your whole family are about fixing things. You're not just about complaining. You like to get things done and make things better. How do we fix, first, what's wrong with the media? And then how do we fix what, what you see is wrong with the media? Right. I think going back to one of the things you just said um, that we have to do away with is is reporters injecting their own bias into the story. So often we saw reporters become the story instead of just report the story, yeah. but also just putting so much opinion. And even if the story itself um, that they put out is, you know, a factual story and based on, on true news and real reporting, their, their social media feeds are so full of opinion, it's hard to separate the two. You know that they're coming into it with such bias, and that never would have been allowed in newsrooms for reporters to engage in the way that they do and put out so much of their personal feelings in right. a public way. And, and I think we have to go back to separating what is news and what is opinion. Those lines have become so blurred. It's impossible for any normal person to know what is real news and what is opinion. And I, I think it's a very dangerous place that we've moved journalism into is where it's, it's all blended into one. And we've got to go back to separation. You see, you also had so much more accountability in a newsroom. There was, you know, multiple editors before something ever went out, but now every reporter can put out a tweet and that tweet drives news. But there's no editorial process. That's such so, a great point, Sarah. Um, yeah. A New York Times reporter can put out a tweet about something with the president or the administration, and every major media outlet will follow suit and start running with it as if it is fact, and there's been no check, no balance, um, no accountability whatsoever in the process. And we have to go back to having accountability and also separating the news from the opinion. Yeah, you had a great line in the book that I highlighted because it, it really spoke to my heart and what, what it's been. I've been thinking for the last few years, and I'll just read it to our folks here in case they haven't had a chance to hear the sign. You shouldn't be able to tell what a reporter's point of view is. The reporting should give the facts, not their opinion, and let you decide. And it's so true. We basically know everybody's reporting point of view now because it's so overt. And I think that loss of neutrality has not only harmed our industry, but but probably democracy at large. Our founding fathers always imagined a free press being important. But they also imagined it being neutral and fair, and uh, somehow we've lost that. The um, when you look back to, and I'm just something that's personal to me because I've seen so much of the Russia reporting and how wrong it turned out to be. But you know, you go back to there's a story in February 2017, New York Times front page that just proclaimed, and it was, I think, the story that put the kerosene into the fire of this uh, of this false controversy that senior Russian intelligence officials met and had contacts multiple times with senior Trump campaign officials. That story is demonstrably wrong. Uh, James Comey testified it was wrong. Peter Strzok, no fan of President Trump, uh, wrote a memo uh, highlighting how all nine facts, and I put that in quotes, were wrong. Yet that story's never been retracted. Is, is that part of the lack of accountability, the fact that the New York Times can't go back and admit their marquee story on the Russia scandal was flat out wrong? Do we need to see more retractions in order to get right with the American people? Absolutely. And they can't be retractions 
that run, you know, on the back page of the D section right. when it was a front page story that drove news for days. And so many times that's what, that's what happens. You know, the, the press is always, if we, if we misspeak on one word, um, all hell breaks loose and, you know, they go absolutely crazy, but right. they can run an entire story where people are even fired from their outlets and yet it's a blip on the radar and they moved past it. There's no correction. And the hard part is even if they went back and corrected it, that all of the stories that followed that because they drive so much additional news uh, from a story like that, that it's so impossible to put the genie back in the bottle. And so that's why I think accountability on the front end has to become a bigger priority for news outlets if they really want to be taken seriously and they really want to have credibility. They need to shut down all of these, uh, you know, opinion moments from their reporters on social media, and they need to get them back to strictly reporting the news where they have an editorial process that is very, um, I think, thorough, particularly when they're making charges like the ones they did exactly so frequently in the Russia, which they literally accused the president of the United States of being a traitor to his own country. And they never mm. had anything to back it up. It was just constant hearsay and anonymous sources and no accountability. It is remarkable to go back. We've almost forgotten how hysterical uh, the media was in that that period. But I look back, and of course, you you probably haven't forgotten because you were getting all the bombs on the stand <laughs> every day. But um, oh my gosh, the behavior was so bad. And then it happens again, right? We see the Ukraine uh, scandal impeachment comes, and the president connected uh, the aid to uh, an investigation of Trump. No, he or uh, Biden. No, he didn't. The call comes out. You guys release the transcript. But the narrative doesn't change. Even when you guys release the fact showing it's wrong, I have a funny feeling. I have a story out today that the the new Homeland Security whistleblower that Adam Schiff is parading about town, I have a funny feeling that story is going to go the same route as Russia, Ukraine, and all the other ones. And that gets me to another subject. The art of destruction has become so uh, refined in Washington politics. It isn't anymore just about facts and policies and legislative debates and policy differences. It seems, and, and I, I see it in the persona of Adam Schiff particularly, but there are other people on both sides that do this, that it isn't good enough just to defeat a policy or an idea. You must destroy the person that is the abject of that policy or the supporter of that policy. Um, how concerned are you that we've engaged in sort of this disinformation warfare that now is involved in the destruction of people, not not just a policy or a, a debate. Oh, I think it's incredibly dangerous. And I, I you know, I lived through it myself. And so um, I think continuing down this road, and, and again, certainly people who run for office, I think they expect that they will be challenged on their agenda, on legislation, on um, you know, again, political philosophy. But I don't think that especially those that aren't the ones running, but are the ones working for the principal, anticipate or expect to have every part of their life, uh, you know, criticized and picked apart and attacked. Uh, certainly, I was, you know, growing up in a political family, I very much expected that working in the Trump administration would have difficult days and certainly a lot of challenges and that we would have to fight back and defend ourselves. But I never thought it would be over, you know, the clothes we wore and our makeup 
and our ability to bake a pie. I thought it would be on what we were fighting for and what we believed in. And so I think that that was very unexpected and has been for a lot of us that served in the administration and a lot of others that have been part of politics over the last couple of years that have had to live through that just, you know, idea and concept of a complete and total destruction without any regard for the fact that we're talking about real people who have real lives and real families. And just, um, I, again, I think it's a, a blatant disregard for, for people as human beings. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. We've got to depersonalize politics a little bit, uh, just like we have to denutralize uh, or neutralize journalism, it seems, uh, in the, in the not-so-distant future. Um, there's so many great anecdotes in this book, and, and uh, some are funny. Uh, my favorite one that made me snicker was uh, the day you parked in the vice president's spot uh, on your first day in the office. <laughs> when I, I, I had to wake up my wife in the middle. I said, you got to read this. This is so funny. She's like, why are you waking me up? And then she read it. Said, oh, now I know you woke me up. That's pretty funny. Uh, you would have done the same <laughs> thing, she said to me. I said, yeah, probably true. Um, the, the one that I like, because I think in this era of uh, hatred and political division and anarchy that we're all going through, uh, there's a, a reminder that so many amazing, kind, well-intentioned people uh, still exist every day in the heartland of America. And so I wonder if you could tell folks about the day you went to go pick up uh, the pies for your staff. You were working for your dad's uh, campaign. You were late to get to the plane. Uh, I love the story about the officer who stopped you. Could you uh, could you regale our audience with uh, the kindness that he showed you that day? Sure. So we were we were in Houston, and um, this was in 2008, March of 2008, and um, Texas was sort of like the last stand for my dad, and we knew that the polls didn't look great for us, and this was probably going to be the end of a very hard-fought campaign. And so I thought that the team could use a little pick-me-up as we were wrapping up one of our very last events um, before the primary took place. And I went to this old-school pie shop in Houston and bought as many pies as I could. I just bought everything, and I was taking them back to the campaign plane where everyone was going to load up, the press and the traveling uh, staff. And I figured, you know what? Pie makes everybody happy. So I realized that it's taking them, taking them a while to pack up these pies and the event has ended and the bus that it will be headed back to the plane is going to be leaving soon. I'm in a rental car that doesn't belong to me. I have no (laughs) identification, but that didn't really cross my mind as I'm flying down this road trying to get back. I just didn't want to get left and I get pulled over and the officer asks me, you know, license and registration. And I said, sir, I have no license with me. I don't have registration. This is a rental car in someone else's name. I literally have my cell phone and a couple business cards in my pocket and about 30 pies in the back seat <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm taking to Mike Huckabee and Chuck Norris. And he goes, really? And he kind of looks at me and he's like, you just can't make up a story no, ridiculous. No. I pull out my business card. I show it to him. I said, we're at a campaign event. I borrowed somebody's car and ran over here to do this. And he was like, you know what? If you will uh, let me get a picture with your dad and Chuck Norris, I think we can work <laughs> something out. And so he ends up getting me back uh, just in time. I got him the picture. And everybody was happier because we had 30 pies on board the plane and I didn't miss the flight. So 
it's uh, it's my favorite story in the book, and that's maybe because I grew up in a law enforcement family. But I just loved it, and uh, uh, this book is just full of amazing, great anecdotes like that. Once you start reading, you're not going to put it down. It's that good, folks. Uh, a couple quick questions before we let you go. First, what do you think this election, the question uh, that voters will ultimately turn on in making the decision? What do you think is the ultimate question that voters decide between Donald Trump in four more years and Joe Biden? Well, I think we have one candidate who has proven that he is capable and understands how to build a strong economy. And as we come out of the COVID pandemic, we're going to need somebody who can do that. Donald Trump has proven he can. I think that's going to be and should be a big factor for voters as they go to the polls in November. I also think safety and security and law and order. We are watching chaos unleashed around this country in American cities, big and small. And we need somebody who is willing and capable to stand up to the liberal mob and tell them that while we all agree you have a right to peacefully protest, you do not have a right to destroy businesses, burn cities to the ground and hurt innocent people. And Donald Trump has once again proven that he's willing to do that, but he didn't just start doing it. He's been talking about law and order and the importance of it since he first ran in 2016. He has credibility on both the economy and law and order. I think he should really focus and lean heavily into those two messages. The contrast between the two candidates on that could not be clear. Joe Biden has not demonstrated his willingness to stand up to the liberal mob. And even when he does try to talk about it, They have no credibility. Members of his staff, including his running mate, just uh, weeks ago were raising money to bail people out of jail who were part of the chaos. And to me, that is a disqualifier. And we need somebody who will help restore safety in our communities. It's been funny over the last couple of days, uh, Joe Biden's had to eat crow and a few things. He had to admit that uh, the president replaced NAFTA with a better policy. He had to admit that uh, he had to get tough on China after years of not being so tough on China, Biden, uh, that is, and his son cashing in on China. It seems as though uh, Joe Biden is adopting to the Donald Trump platform, which could be an interesting dynamic as we go into Election Day. Uh, last, uh, last question, because I know you're going to get going. Uh, what is next for you? Do uh, you, does your belly burn for politics? Do we, do we see a governor, senator, congresswoman somewhere in our future uh, for you? Definitely very committed to public service in some form or another. Yeah. Um, right now I'm focused on the 2020 election, helping the president get reelected right. and I'll make a decision after that about whether or not I'll make a run for the Arkansas governor's race in 2022. Well, you have some familiar uh, familiarity with that mansion, I would imagine. And uh, I know the mayor, I know the (laughs) Arkansas people would, uh, would have some tremendous familiarity for you too. So Sarah, I can't thank you enough. Congratulations on an amazing book. It is a great read. Uh, I keep it. I kept on my bedstand. I read it right through because it was so good. Uh, If folks, if you haven't gotten it, please go get it today. It's a, a remarkable piece of work speaking for myself and there's no doubt about it that sarah huckabee sanders does that well sarah thank you for joining us and we'll let you get back to the daily grind you bet thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it oh my pleasure all right folks we're going to go to a quick commercial break and then we'll come back to wrap things up okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. I'm so grateful you joined. I really feel like we got a lot out of that Sarah Huckabee Sanders interview today. Someone who's very thoughtful about the state of media, about faith, about our politics, about our president, about our country, and not mean-spirited at all. Uh, Actually, self-deprecating. This story about her getting stopped on the pizza run, one of my favorite stories, not only in the book, but just the way she told it. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, I think you got to see a different side of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, not the woman on the the podium, but uh, a mom, a working mom a patriot, someone concerned about their country. Yes, you can be a Republican and a Democrat. You can be concerned about your country. That's a good thing. Uh, You got to hear from her firsthand. I'm so grateful. Also, don't forget about that Hunter Biden story. It's important. It has real consequence. We we need to get to the bottom of these answers. And I predict next week, the week of September 21st, we may see some new accountability, some new revelations, some new declassifications, maybe even, not certain, but maybe some actions long overdue, I know many people on this show, Phil, um, uh, from John Durham, the special prosecutor in the Russia case. More to come. We'll have all of this next week. It'll be, it could be a momentous week. We'll make sure Just the News has the right guests, the right questions, the right news for you. Until then, have a blessed weekend. Thank you for all you do. Support Just the News and John Solomon Reports, the podcast. <laughs>